Welcome back, Kofkin Bond listeners. This week's episode, we have the privilege of hosting another distinguished guest, Mark Fuller, the senior editor of a renowned publication, The Age. Mark Fuller is a veteran journalist with unparalleled passion for uncovering the truth and shedding light on the pressing issues shaping our world. With decades of experience in the field, Mark has established himself as a trusted source of information with an unwavering commitment to the journalistic integrity. As a senior editor of The Age, Mark oversees a team of talented journalists and plays a pivotal role in guiding the publication's editorial direction. In this episode, we have the privilege of delving into the mind of this exceptional journalist. Mark will share his thoughts on the evolving media landscape, the importance of investigating journalism, the role a journalist has in holding power to account, and the new world of digital media. We'll explore his experiences, personal insights, and the challenges he faces. Join us for this thought-provoking conversation as we embark on a journey through the realm of journalism with Mark. Tune in and gain invaluable insights into the world of journalism and discover the importance of an informed society in an age of ever-changing media dynamics. Mark, welcome to the Kofkenbaum podcast. Thanks, Jamie. Lovely Tony. to have you here, Mark. Yeah, Tony. Tony, this is one I'm excited about. As I said, I, uh, journalism is something I'm fascinated with. And I guess, Mark, your start in journalism was through sport. And I, that's a passion of mine was, you know, coming through your schooling, was, was sport a passion for you? And, and what led you down the path of journalism? Yeah, I was. Uh, I played sport from a young age. Um, uh, cricket and, and rugby was were my two loves, and they and um, cricket certainly is something that I, I still play. Um, yep. Fifty years later, and uh, and I played rugby for uh, into, into my into my twenties before moving from New South Wales to Melbourne, and then uh, and when I moved to Melbourne, I ended up working on the Sunday Age, working Saturdays, unfortunately for ten years or so. So that took um, my sort of my, my competitive sport. Um, Opportunities away for a while, but you know I've, I've always had a passion for it, and and I've, it's been it's, I've been lucky enough to um, to have that um, as a central part of my working life um, for a large part of my time. So I, I guess journalism, um, when you first joined the industry, I know it was a lot around cadetships. You know, a lot of people actually didn't go to university to study it. Yeah. Um, what was your pathway into journalism? I, I didn't I didn't uh, go to university. I came straight out of school. I, I, I got a job on the... I was living in in country New South Wales in Dubbo at the time. Yeah. And um, I just f- finished my... Um, I was a week out of um, finishing my HSC, so I was only 17. Um, and I'd been doing uh, some reports for the local newspaper on, on our school sport um, during, during my school holidays. Um, if, we, we had, if we had a big school sporting event, I'd write something for the local paper. During my school holidays, I went and did some work experience with with the um, with the guys uh, in the sports section there. And when I finished my schooling, they um, they rang me up a week later and offered me a cadetship. Um, so I basically spent um, I was unemployed for about seven days yep. in my life, and um, and away I went. And, and I spent uh, six years there in Dubbo, um, working my way through. Uh, the cadetship and then, and then having um, a bunch of different roles there that uh, took me out of sport and into the news section for a while. So I basically covered local sport, ended up at a very young age editing sport in that country newspaper, which was a daily newspaper, and it was a very um, well-staffed and serious country yep. newspaper, well-regarded. And, um, and then I moved into the news section, covered local courts, covered local council, all of those kind of you know, nice little sort of um, hotbeds of uh, scandal and drama in a country town. And that was good fun. And, uh, and then an opportunity came up 
um, in Melbourne, you might recall, uh, around in 1989, um, the, two, the two major outlets, um, so The Age and, and The Herald and Weekly Times, started up Sunday newspapers for the first time. Up until then, there was no real sort of, you know, major Sunday newspapers in Melbourne. It wasn't a tradition that, that had been in, say, Sydney, for example, where, you know, the Sunday Telegraph and the Sun Herald sold, you know, massive uh, volumes of newspapers every weekend. That Sunday newspaper habit hadn't really um, entrenched itself in Melbourne. There, were, there was, I think there was a Sunday Press which is run out of um, uh, Peter Isaacson publications. It was a, a small organisation, and I can't remember what the other one was. And then the two big organisations decided that they would start a Sunday newspaper, and so there was a real need for new journalists. And I was lucky enough to get a job um, at the Sunday Age um, from, um, from while well, I was in Tubbo. Yep. So I moved to Melbourne in 1990, and I've been at the Age since. So 33 years later, I'm still slogging away. Um, We've, we've changed buildings a couple of times. Yep. We've changed, I've changed roles um, many times. So um, as a young journalist, uh, then did you ever drink at the Golden Age Hotel down in Spencer Street? I did indeed. <laughs> my, my best friend growing up, actually, I probably had a beer there, but I might have only been 15. Yeah. Uh, but my uh, best friends growing up, the Curry family owned the Golden Age. Right, okay. Yeah, so I know the Golden Age Hotel very well in oh, Spencer yes, Street. It, it was a hotbed of scandal as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. We had, uh, one, one of the, I don't know, with older... older um, uh, people listening here would, would may recall a guy called Bob Millington, who was a uh, used to write a sort of a sort of a gossip type. What, what, what you know, what in the age, um, you know, was represented a gossip type column, and he basically wrote that from the front bar of the Golden Age. He okay. he, he, he had a telephone, uh, and a laptop, and an ashtray, yep. and and he basically spent his working life uh, at the bar of the Golden Age until he retired in sort of the mid nineties. That's where I started my underage drinking career. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I get you, you sort of just painted a picture, I, I think, of when you, your early career, when you know journalism started. They sort of paint that picture of the journalist sitting there smoking. Yeah. What were the early years like at the age? So, Jamie, personal behaviour, point four. Alcohol should not be consumed <laughs> while at workstation. <laughs> Staff members should not be under the influence of illegal yeah. drugs or alcohol while at work. <laughs> and, and, we take, and we take the age code of conduct very seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yep. those, those early years, what yep. what was you know stepping into the Melbourne scene and you know what was journalism like back then well it was uh, you know at that time there was a huge investment in um, in, in, in journalism from both major organizations when the, when they started up the Sunday age so they started up and they started up two newspapers that would never happen now obviously they're just not the, the money in the industry or the um, and it's, it's way too fragmented now for for um, those large organizations to, to, to be to invest that much money in something like that without really knowing How's it going to take off? But at that time, um, journalism was still, um, well, the, the age in particular was still um, able to fund its journalism from what we call the rivers of gold classified sections. So you, you might, you know, back, back, back up until the mid-90s, um, in the Saturday age, there was a massive uh, classified section and real estate section. It was, you could barely put your fists around it. I think uh, one Saturday in particular, we hit 320 pages wow. in the age. Wow. Yeah, you wouldn't want that thing to land on your head. No. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a massive um, piece of newsprint and, and people would, um, you know, on a, on a Friday night before, uh, the presses were in the building in, down in Lonsdale Street on the corner of Lonsdale and Spencer Street. The presses were under the building at the time. The, the whole building had, you know, start to rumble and shake as soon as the presses um, cranked up and, and people would queue up outside the building on a Friday night to get the classified so they could get, you know, early look at, um, you know, uh, any, any um, garage sales and 
you know, uh, real estate opportunities, all those kind of things. And it was a really, it was a really um, vibrant sort of time for newspapers around that around that period. But then, you know, the the arrival of the internet changed all of that. Realestate.com. Realestate.com. Yeah. yeah. It's. Um, I was a as a youngster. I was probably about twelve years old, and I was telling Jamie this story where I used to uh, deliver the Sun in the morning and sell and sell the Herald at night. Yeah, right. Down yeah. down um, opposite the Royal Hotel on uh, Mount Alexander Road. Yep. And you'd you'd be selling the Herald at night. You'd have two Truth newspapers. Uh, which were a bit like the Sun in the in the so in the UK. So you had the form guide and the page three guide. Yep. Yeah. So that that was the truth. And the base you, was covered. That's right. So <laughs> so you had um, and it, it was always somebody walking out to roll would buy the truth um, off you, and basically you're selling the Herald's store the cars. So yeah. you 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 know if there weren't enough people crossing the lights, you would actually start pressing the lights yourself just to yeah. get the cars to stop and yeah, actually they, sell they them, them on the street corner. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So yeah. it was uh, interesting times, but also used to sell football records at Windy Hill, and then after the game, the Herald, and used to have the Herald truck come around, and basically you're sitting there waiting about well, probably just before, probably about five minutes into the last quarter, and they come and they throw their two batches of heralds at you, depending on where, where you are at Windy Hill selling uh, selling the heralds after the game, and mm-hmm. you got swamped, and it was still the broadsheet back then. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it was, uh, so you just had the 12-year-old kid with hundreds upon hundreds of dollars worth of cash on you. Yeah. Uh, how, we, how we weren't robbed was just beyond me, so it was uh, selling the herald afterwards. Yeah, well, I, I should say I actually did begin my newspaper career as a paper boy. As, as a well. paper boy, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, um, in, in where I grew up in Sydney, in the western suburbs there, and you know, riding a, riding a bike around with a... Um, sort of a metal basket strapped to the front yep. of my bike, and a large sort of cigarette box um, on the on the front of the bike, which is full of newspapers. And um, you know, I'd ride around on, in the afternoon and sell the the, the Daily Mirror and the Sun. Yeah. And, uh, I still remember um, probably the most the, most, uh, the, the clearest memory of that for me. I was thinking I was 14 at the time. Was or thereabouts was um, riding around and, and seeing people were coming out of their houses in numbers. More than more than usual, and looking at the paper and reading it together, and I thought, what the hell's going on here? Like there must be some some big news in that paper. And I pulled my bike over the side of the road and sat down and grabbed a paper, and it was um, the Lindy Chamberlain Dingo took my baby front oh, page, yeah. and it was just one of those moments where it just captured everybody's imagination, and 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 the, and the newspaper was the thing that. Um, they they most desperately wanted and uh, it kind of was one of those things like this thing's got a bit of power this 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 newspaper thing people, yeah people people need this I, I quite like the idea of being a part of that yeah yeah. So I guess in the early days before digital and before the internet, we're talking delivering a story. Um, you know, you're working, you find one. How did you go around? You know, what was the pressures under to try and deliver that story? You know, how did you go about it? As you know, in those early years. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's, it's, there's always a lot of pressure depending on what your um, what your uh, competition is. Yeah. But it's like in, in any in any field, and it's a business, and. Um, uh, so, if, if, if you're working in a realm where there's no real competition, there's not so much pressure to get the story fast and get it uh, get it out there. But um, it, uh, in which case, you're really just trying to make sure you can get a story that's got has got all the facts in, it, it's got the best possible story that you can that you can bring yep. around that particular subject, for example. But if you but if, you, if you're a competitive realm, so you know, like if you're covering football in Melbourne. Um, that's that's probably one of the most uh, you know contested spaces in journalism in Australia and possibly you know, in some places in the world because it's there's there's a fanaticism of support around it and you've got at the time the you know, two major newspaper outlets um, sinking heavy resources into trying to get the best footy stories you can you've got there's something like 800 accredited 
football journalists in Melbourne. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a well, lot of people. You know, yeah. I mean, sorry, in, well now in Australia, sorry, that's yeah. AFL, but yeah, there's a lot of AFL um, accredited journos, and the, comp- the competition for that yarn is intense. So yeah, that uh, back back then there was a back back then when I first came down, I was more in the role of an editor, and I was sending guys out to find those things. So in your role as the editor, when you sort of first started and moved to Melbourne, what's some of the big stories that you can remember? Oh, gee, that's a good question. Um, well, I, my uh, my second or third week on the on the paper was um, was uh, the, the drawn grand final, the 1990 grand final. Yep. Grand final? Yeah, that yeah. was it, Essendon yep. Collingwood. Yep. Yeah, I was in London at the time, but I told all my friends to put all their money on Essendon, who we'll definitely yep. win, and... Yep. Yeah, I didn't show up to the pub for about three weeks after that. Yeah, so, and, so. And, uh, and and I was um, I'd only been on the I'd only I'd come from from country New South Wales, so my um, my sort of uh, AFL chops were, you know were not great. Um, I, didn't, you know, I didn't I didn't know it as intimately as I probably knew rugby league and rugby union, for example, and certainly cricket. Um, and I was sort of thrown into the deep end. Um, traditionally. Um, grand final day, you know, you basically you staff up as, as big as you can. It's a, one of the biggest days, if not the biggest day of the year for a newspaper because you're on, you've got so much happening at the very end of the day so you really need to ha- have, you know, all hands on deck. And um, so we had all hands on deck for the for the grand final and then it was a draw and there was the replay was scheduled for the following week and all of the senior editors had um, booked all their holidays <laughs> yeah. for the week after and I was, you know, this, this kid from Dubbo who knew pretty much bugger all and suddenly I was thrown into the deep end as um, you know running running a a 40 man um, sports desk uh, for the grand final replay and it was pretty intense I wasn't sports editor I was um, uh, the the chief sub editor so basically I was I was responsible for putting out the paper putting the paper together and, and managing the, the staff who did that so it was pretty intense yeah so to so that type of but role 23 years later you're still there so you obviously did a good job you're senior editor now yeah, it's, so it's, it's, you're it's, still there and have had a few promotions <laughs> along the way unfortunately it's 33 years later yeah. 33 <laughs> oh it is too geez. since we won that grand yeah. final i drew we didn't even win we drew it yeah, yeah. So, yeah it's a long time yeah. so within that time as you're talking about putting the paper together yep. what what type of work does that involve is that you looking at the stories yeah. is is that you sort of determining where they sit in the paper is that yeah. you reading them all like, could you talk us through what an editor is doing within that time? Yeah, so um, I, I ended up being sports editor for a long time after that as well. And so, as, as a, as a, as a um, uh, in the role that I had then when I was um, chief sub editor, my role was to to, design, to lay out the paper, so design the paper, working with the working with the sports editor to determine what stories we wanted to put on which pages, yep. and which stories we would run with pictures, which stories would be sort of a, like a lead, hard, hard news, which would be a softer kind of treatment, um, and, uh, and, then, and then we'd choose the pictures and, and, and write the headlines for those for those stories. We'd have a bunch of sub-editors on the, on the bench back then, and there would have been um, maybe, as I say, 25, 30, up to 40 guys, most, no, mostly men back then, uh, but we did have a few women who were, who were on the sports desk, and that's changed a lot now. It's much more... Sort of fifty fifty, yeah. Um, and uh, some of them, you know, crotchety old blokes who've been around for a hundred years, and uh, and uh, you know, they 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 they, they, they were um, the, your traditional sub editor is a is a born pedant, you know, with a eye for detail, and uh, there, there was lo- there's always lots of uh, banter and uh, and consternation around you know, certain types of writing, and so it was always good fun. But my, my role was to make sure that all of that st- that those various pages were done in a, in, a, in a scheduled way, so that. Um, You'd send. You, you couldn't send an entire newspaper to the presses at once. You have to send them staggered. So you'd, so you'd make sure that you scheduled pages um, that worked for 
the timing around the event you were covering, for example, or the events you're covering. The editor, the editor would, sports editor would be um, making calls on which stories would would lead the paper, and then I'd have to run that. And then when I became sports editor, I was making those calls. And as sports editor, you're basically on the phone to all of your people in the field. So we'd have, you know, on a say on a Saturday afternoon, we'd have back then sort of six footy matches going on. Um, plus you know, some soccer and basketball and whatever, and so I'd be speaking to all of the reporters in the field, saying what's going on, who's who's doing what, you know, what's the story here, um, what's the best option, who are we talking to, what have you got, blah blah. And, then, and so the phone, you're just con- constantly on the phone for like you know 12 hours, yeah, um, and making calls on what goes where, telling them what to write, and yeah, that's and then. And then uh, as, a, as a sports editor, you're then reporting up to the editor of the paper and going and saying, mate, I reckon we've got something here that might be not just a sports story, but it could be on page one. Okay. Nicky Winmar type thing, you know, those kind of things. I was on the, I was, I, I'd moved into a different role and I was chief sub editor of the newspaper, the Sunday Age, on the on the day that Nicky Winmar, you know, famous yep. jumper pool thing, and um, uh, laid out that page that. Um, the, Amazing you know, photo. Yeah, and we remember the, the, the remember the, the photographer coming in, Wayne Ludby, who's you know who's a very a, famous a champion, photographer. Yeah, or, um, basically you know saying, guys, this is this you got to put this story picture on the front page. I've got the iconic yeah. photo, and he, he pushed he pushed hard, and, and we did. And yeah, it was a you know, um, and and still remembered as being on the front page of the Sunday Age that day, and, and, and in a lot of ways changing the way people perceived Indigenous players in the AFL and and the way in which people perceive racism in this country as well. And um, it was a very significant moment, but I still remember that we didn't run it as the main picture. It was, it was a smaller picture down page. And it, you know, today, if that, if that had happened today or even 10 years ago, you know, I think we would have made a, a, a different call around that. Yeah, is that a hard thing as an editor to know, you know, when you reflect on stories like that, it's all, you know, I wish we'd sort of made it a larger photo. When yeah. you get a story, is it hard? To, do, you, do you think forward and do you think what impact this has? Do you think it the other impact now? Like, how do you make those decisions? Yeah, I mean, you really need to um, have, it's, you know, part of being an editor is to, is that you have to have a, a strong appreciation of what are going to be the implications of your decisions yep. um, across um, not just your, your readership but across sort of um, the social and political and economic and financial um, uh, you know, landscapes. So you really need to be, um, you know, uh, well-schooled in, in what's going on in the world and, and the world around you and have a strong appreciation of what, what what's going to be the impact of this. How, 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 the, how is this going to ripple out? And... Um, and you know what? What is what is our responsibility here with that as well? Um, so yeah, certainly we, we really every time we make a decision, we, we consider those impacts. So that'd be hard, I guess, to process it. You know, at a time as an editor, and that's probably where you know you, there's a lot of stories coming across your desk. You know, how do you determine what you deem to be the most important on the day? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a daily it's a daily issue. Yeah, and you know, it's, and it's not just one person. You know, it's a, a whole bunch of people um, with you know good experience. Um, uh, with a variety of, um, of views and considerations um, uh, being brought into the discussion, and uh, and you know it's 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 something that's uh, not done ever um, lightly or with uh, you know or flippantly. It's you know it's it's all, we're all we always consider that the, these these could have these decisions could have an impact on you know uh, on a lot of people and sometimes um, could have significant uh, impacts on just one person. Yeah. Um, and you know one of, one of our uh, Primary um, uh, guiding sort of principles is that we don't do any, we do no harm. Yeah, mm. and and that's you know, and sometimes you can inadvertently 
you know, uh, fail that that um, measure, but um, and really, but really, you shouldn't. You, you shouldn't. There should there be there should be no inadvertence in this. You should be informed enough to be able to make uh, a decision um, based on you know as much information as you can acquire. As a daily newspaper, though, where you're under pressure to get that newspaper out every single day. Mm -hmm. That, that pressure to be able to have the t uh, all the stories put together, the stories checked, yeah. uh, so some of them do need to be checked for accuracy and things like that, which I believe is an editor's role too, yeah. uh, to do some of those fact-checking. That pressure must be so intense to have a newspaper out every single day. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and, and actually full as well. Yeah. yeah and, and enough stories to warrant the advertising spend that's gone into those newspapers as well. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and these days um, the pressure is slightly different. I mean, back up until you know the internet became um, you know a, a, the, the dominant sort of um, uh, source of information for people. Um, when, when before when, when newspapers were the way people got their news, apart from you know TV and radio, um, there was there was a lot of pressure um, on, on each nightly deadline, but. They were they were kind of long days, you know. You we, we the paper wouldn't hit the presses uh, until the first edition would go, say at nine o'clock, and then the second edition would go at eleven o'clock at night. And so your second edition was your main edition. Your the first edition, nine o'clock, was the one that went to the country. And you know you could afford to sort of um, uh, hold a story back if it wasn't quite ready, and, and and run something else, and then you know take your time. But these days uh, we're we're publishing, you know, um, in real time online and we're making decisions as things happen um, and putting stuff out into the world um, under under our masthead um, with uh, as, as quickly and as um, with, 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 with as much sort of certainty as we can yeah. and everybody's doing the same kind of thing so there, 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 be, there, be, there has become this new pressure which um, before the pressure the, the, the key pressure was to hit that that print deadline was you know um, to, was accuracy and 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 um, and you know, public interest and those kind of issues. There became a, a, a kind of a guiding principle for a while there, and again, competition um, starts to sort of uh, you know dictate um, dictate actions to be the first to get. Yeah. I was to, going to, to ask, to ask that first. because to be the first can that sometimes you know you want to get that out there before the Herald Sun does or before the Australian does yep. or, or the Guardian or whoever. Yep. But sometimes does that put pressure on that check for accuracy and things like that as well? Oh, all times. Yeah. And, and, and there were, I think in those early days when people, you know, were, were sort of still coming to grips with um, with what the internet was all about and what, what and what publishing online was all about, um, you know, mistakes were made, you know, there were the, the, the checks and balances were still being quite heavily um, weighted towards the print edition because that was seen um, to be the place where the influence was people who cared read the newspaper, people yep. of influence read the newspaper, movers and shakers read the newspaper. Um, and uh, that was where you know, the, the dominant sort of uh, concentration in in, um, in the resources was put as well. So we were kind of, the, the internet was running on a bit of a smell of an oily rag, but you know, publishing is publishing. You put something out there into the world, you're responsible for it. And so we, um, we sort of, you know, particularly I think all organisations took a while to sort of come around to the idea that, you know, um, First is not is not what this is about. I mean, yeah, let's let's try and get let's try and get this out there as quickly as we can, and let's try and be the first to get it out there. But let's not um, forsake accuracy and and all of the all of the guiding principles that you know um, that uh, dictate how we how we publish. 
let's not let's not let those things be the, the casualty of this. As the editor, how often do you call in the legal team when you've got a story? Um, when you're going sort of forward, or, or is it sort of sit on the editors? Because I know, like, there's I guess a, a story with the Age recently around um, Sam McClure um, and sort of the Essendon camp, you know. And how how often are you going with your legal team around these certain aspects? Yeah, depending on um, well, which section you're working in. So in sport, um, not so much. Yep. Um, but having said that, you know, there's there's sport. Sport was in some ways is a bit of like a microcosm of the rest of the paper. It's it, you know it, it's got the sort of um, it'll have uh, you know criminal and um, and crime and justice scandals that um, that you know pervade the rest of society. It'll have business issues with you know um, sponsors and uh, yep. and uh, football clubs you know um, struggling financially. It'll have um, sex scandals. It'll have a bit of celebrity stuff, so it's got kind of you know it's sport in itself, and it will, it will have stories that require a bit of um, uh, legal um, analysis. But if you're working at the front end of the newspaper in hard news, and you know you've got um, uh, our, our one of our greatest assets at the age is our investigations team. It's the, you know, we reckon it's the best in the country, um, and uh, with I think with good reason. And those guys um, are, are, are digging up a lot of stuff that people don't want published. Yep. Right, and so if people don't want it published, there's a strong chance that they're, that they're going to try and find, uh, find make ways to, to, to stop that from being published. So they'll they'll threaten you with you know with um, lawsuits and all sorts of um, you know legal devices to prevent publication. Um, so so we need to make sure we've got all of our facts hardly nailed to the ground, but we also need to be mindful that we know we're not um, stepping on. Uh, th- through the legal processes as well, so we're not you know, we're not in contempt of court at any stage. So you, know, you need to know whether there are any cases running at that time in relation to this. Um, and so the legal team is like is, is central to everything we do because we we um, need to be guided by what we can and can't publish um, for to protect ourselves, to protect to protect uh, us as journalists, to protect the, uh, the 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 company to you know from financial um, distress and uh, and and also to protect their reputation. Um, so there's a, there's a lot at stake, and we, we rely heavily on the um, on the opinion of our, of our legal advisors. And we work one closely of, with them. One of our previous guests, um, Stuart Gibson, um, from McPherson Kelly Lawyers, he's actually a lawyer who represents celebrities um, against slander and defamation and, yep. and things like that as well. And it's, it's uh, he, he never once mentioned the age, but he did tell us some stories off air about some <laughs> celebrities and their behaviour. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> your journalists are probably uncovered. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's, uh, but it was, yeah, just, just understanding him trying to protect a celebrity against themselves a lot of the times, but yeah. that information actually coming up, and he, he gave one example off air, uh, where he had to defend a US, a very well-known US actor, um, and yeah, it, it, it did come out. A few years later, he ended up marrying that girl that he was spoken about having an affair with. You know, yeah. who he was. This is defamation. This is slander. This is costing me my marriage. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's been married to her for about twenty years now. <laughs> so as a, as a result, but so it ended up coming true. Yeah. Now, Stuart did say he he wasn't too sure whether they just got together after that because they were you know they were playing together and decided they liked each other. But, <laughs> but the, it's funny how these things pan. Yeah. So that's right. It is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So. so we do move into, I guess, the age of digital. Um, and and you sort of spoke about a bit of that transition. Um, But I guess the introduction of uh, social media would have been a massive change within how news was delivered, and especially Twitter, Um, because, you know, I guess 
Twitter's instantaneous and, and we talked about that, you know, being first with news and I think you see a lot of the times and I'm probably concentrated a lot on sport because that's sort of the area that I follow um, via Twitter but yeah. I remember even getting my father on Twitter and there was a conversation, you know, mate, I'm not getting on social media and then I sort of introduced him, showed him the journalist and, and where news was coming from, from journalists being on there. So, yeah. you know, the age obviously employs a lot of football journalists but how do, how do you determine sort of where news goes first because realistically if they're putting it on twitter it's their personal brand linked to your brand at the age but um you know that's where they're trying to deliver news first because they want to make sure that they're the first out there so how have yeah. you seen that transition with news and you know it's obviously hurt papers if yes. we go back to the traditional sense yeah. um but how's that transition been from print media to digital yeah well i mean it's, it's been massive obviously and it's been um it's to, to have been um to we've gone through that um uh, and come out the other side where we are now uh, is, is it has been one of the one of the biggest challenges that that journalists have faced and, and certainly media organizations have faced in their in their history yeah this, this has probably been you know our industrial revolution yeah in many ways so uh, it's which causes you to um, completely uh, recalibrate the way you think about the way you go about your business yeah um, and the the big the biggest issue for um, for um, Digital journalism is how do you monetize it? Because you need to pay for it, right? You know, you, you need to these organisations that they just need to um, to make money. They need to survive and to be able to fund the journalism that allows them to survive. Um, so th that still isn't entirely clear. You know, yeah. Um, how, how you monetize digital journalism because the um, you know, um, social social media platforms um, have completely fragmented. The whole media landscape, so to the point where anybody is a is, is a purveyor of some kind of news. Yeah. You know? um, but the 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 significant difference that, that we found, I mean, in that, you, you need to have your you need to have your difference. Is that um, is that when people want reliable sources, they'll come to the major organisations that they trust. They they won't necessarily rely on, you know. Um, Fred blogs with some bizarre name to give them information about how to how to um, what's happening with the latest outbreak of COVID, for example. Po they'll, they'll yeah. Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they'll, they'll go to they'll go to the, um, the they'll, they'll go to a trusted source and they'll and they'll go to the um, the um, the main the, the main uh, destination of that source. So say the Age homepage, for example, um, or they'll buy the paper. Um, so. That's that that the COVID was an example was an example of where um, um, mainstream journalism came into its own a little bit and and the and, and its its um, particular sort of uh, key part of um, society was a functioning society was was um, was um, re-emphasised I suppose in a way that people had forgotten you know they sort of you know that, I mean we know, we know that um, you know. Um, that Donald Trump tries to sort of disparage mainstream media, um, uh, and there is this kind of backlash against the idea of mainstream media as a result of as a result of that, because you know it's it's seen and quite rightly in some ways seen to be um, you know, pushing agendas and uh, agenda you know, agenda driven, and the, and and because of the power. Well, that certainly they have, in the US, it seemed to be. Yeah, or in the it, UK as well. It yeah. is it is everywhere. Yeah. 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 Um, and those agendas, because of the power that um, those uh, these organisations have. Um, that, that they, they can that they can actually change the way in which society operates operates and, and the way politics is conducted and 
in it, and uh, and who has the money and who doesn't. So so to go to go backwards then. Um, if 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 you're uh, if, if you're a journalist and you're, you're putting your stuff up onto Twitter, for example, um, you have a you have a, a commitment and a responsibility to your employer if, if if you're doing it under under your name and people know that you're a, you work at a media organisation. So is that even just passing your own opinion on something? Yeah, so not necessarily an article you've written, or posting an article, but actually just giving your personal opinion uh, which 50% of the population might applaud you for and the other 50% want you lynched for. Yeah, you I mean, know, it was, it just, this was a really slow... It's um, happened with the ABC, some ABC journalists of recent times. Yep. Yep. Uh, t- Twitter, Twitter in particular, um, uh, and, and Facebook for a while there, but, but Twitter in particular, um, was, a, was a real issue for, um, for newsrooms to come to grips with because uh, it was so easy for, for people who are, um, you know, Got a strong uh, and interest in, in a particular area. So that's you know, say you're a journalist and you're covering, you know, state politics. You, you know more than pretty much anybody else in the state about what's going on in there, and and, and so you have insight, you have um, and you have strong opinions about what's going on because of the knowledge that you have. Um, you you know, there's there's a strong impulse of, among a lot of um, journalists who who like to put their who like. Who like Information to be put out there—that's what they're journalists to put out their their opinion or their take on what's been happening under their own name, um, and that, that that was happening at the time, um, say six or so years ago, when you know, ten maybe ten years ago, when Twitter was really just sort of you know finding its way, um, and that was something that we had to really wrestle with um, as an organisation. How how do we and as journalists how do we um, uh, fight, kind of Manage that the difference between what's personal opinion and what's um, reported on, you know, on behalf of your employer, and the distinction is just too hard to make. So, if, if for example you've got um, a, a political reporter who is writing news about the premier, um, and you've just put a tweet out saying that you know um, Billy Bloggs is a bit of a shyster, and here's here's another example of why he should never be uh, you know allowed to run a state. He's a joke, blah blah. That's my in your th- these opinions are my own. Then you go and write a news story. It 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 it, it, it casts a shadow over your yeah. um, impartiality. Yeah. Right. Whether that's intended or not, whether you can manage to sort of silo those kind of things within yourself, it, it, it creates the impression, or it creates a uh, uh, you know, the idea that perhaps you're not entirely um, uh, independent. In your, and, and that, that there are inflections in everything you write now that, that, that indicate that maybe you know, um, you're, the age um, believes that this guy should not be premier or whatever. Yeah. So it, con- it contaminates the, the process. And, and so, so people then start to believe that the newspaper has a bias yeah. uh, towards uh, we're put, push, pushing a certain agenda yeah. rather yeah. than that just being that reporter. Yeah. yeah. And look, pe- people are... Um, Make those assumptions anyway. Yeah, you know they, they assume that you know you if you work for the age you're you know you're 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 a lefty or or you know now now that we've been um, we've merged with with the nine nine entertainment um, that that we you know we have certain uh, say uh, former influential politicians who are on our board who may you know who, who are shaping um, our news agenda which is entirely Mark, true. Mark, it was interesting. I did see on Twitter once that, uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, um, I think you might have seen my comment. I couldn't help myself. I had to comment, but someone turned around. There was, there was an article from The Age and turned around and said, 
typical Murdoch gutter press journalism. And I just made a comment, you might want to do some research <laughs> on the age. <laughs> so yeah. it was, but yeah. it was just like, he didn't agree with that article. So yeah. all of a sudden it was, well, it's it's Murdoch gutter. And it's like, yeah. eh, you might want to just check who owns the age. Yeah, so people make a lot of um, that's right. assumptions. Um, yeah, sometimes they're informed and sometimes they're not. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you, you need to... Jamie did tell me I wasn't allowed to comment on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a minefield. Yeah. And, and it's best to, to stay away, although it is a really good... I mean, journalists... Twitter is, what, out in about 2% of the population yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, it's, 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 and, and it's a very niche... Um, it's a very niche platform that is dominated by journalists, you know, talking to each other. It's a bit of an echo chamber. Yeah. In some Mark, can I, can I ask a question on that? So before, before we went on air, we are talking about the series uh, The Press, which is an English series, which is sort of loosely based on, I'm assuming, The Guardian and The Sun New Tabloid over there in the UK. But in, in the US, and this has come up certainly during COVID, it's not, it's not the case here because I believe it's only New Zealand and the US that allow uh, medical organisations like Pfizer, for example, to be able to advertise. Um, and you're not allowed to do that here in Australia. So, so based on that, they, they've given examples of like, say, Sake CNN as an example, where everything was sponsored by Pfizer. You know, so it was sponsored by Pfizer, sponsored by Pfizer. Surely that would have to have some influence if they were going. They they couldn't go on there and say, well, these drugs aren't working as well as what you originally said. If you know, if you got uh, a good chunk of your revenue that's actually from your sponsor, and they gave an example of that in the press, which is totally fictional, uh, probably based on true stories, like what you're saying, the Mercury, mm-hmm. uh, when they came and did uh, that thing here. But they gave that example where they had a wraparound, they were looking at for the, uh, the the Herald, which is based on The Guardian, having that wraparound advertisement on the front of the newspaper, so it's the full wraparound, yeah. and how much is that going to cost. But one of their reporters had turned around and said, you've got to be kidding me, because he was just about to publish an article about how this clothing manufacturer, whatever they were, were using slave labour in Bangladesh. Yeah. You know, so basically it was just all slave labour. So they're about to come out with this article and of course the advertiser said, you are kidding me, aren't you? You produce that, we pull all of our advertising. So there was that sort of a conflict. That doesn't seem to happen as much here in Australia, but what would your, is when it comes to those type of biases, have you seen where, you know, you've said, well, we can't do that because of advertising or, uh, it's a case of no, that's a story, and that's factually correct. We're going to run that story. Yeah, I mean, and it doesn't have to be the age, but yeah. you know, in newspapers in general or no, mainstream it's, it's media, a, it's a constant thing to be to be um, that we need to be mindful of. Especially those rivers of gold, which you know yeah. that you, you once had on the yeah. Sunday mornings. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, as I say, j- journalism is, is expensive. Um, yes, and uh, good journalism is more expensive because it's basically your resources of people, and the more people you have. Um, the more you are able to sort of, you know, um, cover the news and, 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 and dig up news um, in, in ways that um, you know, are, are effective and, and of interest to, to, to your readers. So the more, the more, the more money you've got to, to invest in your journalism, the better your journalism is going to be. So there is a sort of a, um, this kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, unhappy sort of marriage between the commercial and the, and the, um, and the impartial integrity-driven aspects of, of, the, of the publishing um, process. 
the, you know, there's, there's, there's a, always been a conflict between the commercial and the, and the, the, new, and the news. And so we, we, we've had to deal with those kind of conflicts you know, plenty of times over the years because we, we, we run a lot of ads. Um, yeah. And, uh, it, for example, we, we, we would be mindful of if there's a, you know, there's a plane crash and we've got um, an airline sponsoring um, page, you know, has, a, has an ad on a page, we would be mindful of not running an, a, an air, you know, a plane crash on the same page as the ad for, for, a news, for um, yeah. an airline. Yeah. Or Even if they're obviously a different airline. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and but you know, or if there, but that that really mostly we gave very little consideration to what was on the on the page. Um, but if it was something big, if there was a uh, if there was a you know, um, um, say, say there was a big big crash and we had uh, a, a major sponsor, a major uh, financial investor, um, who would be impacted by that we would let them know perhaps that you know this is what we're going to do would you like to withdraw your your advertising yeah okay um uh so you know th- th- those kind of things happen um and yeah it's 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 you know it's the nature of business but, but we would but mostly um we would ha- we want those decisions taken out of the hands of the journalists and put into the hands of management um and yeah uh, it's, they're, they're delicate matters to deal with. It's not, and, and you know, there was a there was a lot of consternation um, from readers, and you know, when we started doing those kind of advertising wraparounds as well, and you know, saying you're basically you've been bought by you know X um, furniture outlet or whatever, you know. Um, but I think people realise that without that um, that kind of investment in, in our journalism, you're not going to get your journalism, you're not going to get your news. Um, and the, the only way, the only other way to do it is to publicly fund it in the way that we publicly fund the, the ABC. Yeah. And we know what a constant, you know, um, uh, you know, issue that is around, particularly from its its biggest competitor, which is, you know, Murdoch always trying to um, to bury the ABC. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. We're not, we're not publicly funded, we're a business, so we have to, you know, be mindful of those challenges. So on that, you've you know, the newspaper traditionally made its money from advertising and selling the newspaper. Um, when you first started, say in 1990, the drawn grand final, um, what was the amount of actual print newspapers that were sold, say on a daily basis? What was what was the biggest day that you would have sold? Was that a Saturday? Yes, Saturday's a, Saturday was the biggest day. Yeah. So, what what would have been is. the publication of a Saturday compared, to, say, back in nineteen ninety compared to now, well, in respect to print? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, back then, um, I think you might, we might have been selling, you know, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand Saturday papers. I think something yeah. like that. And you know, now it's a fraction of that. Yeah. Um, but our readership is considerably greater than it ever was than it's yeah. ever been so we're, we're, we're reaching more people through through our digital yeah. platforms than, 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 we've, than we've ever reached um, in the heydays of print and, and I guess with with digital now you can talk to your um, I guess people that are advertising and say that this is how many clicks this is how much time spent yeah. reading yes. um, so know. in the in the past you know, part of part of um, being an editor was um, was that you needed to sort of try and read read the public sentiment you needed to have a try and have a strong understanding of what people wanted to most read about you know, what, what, what interested them most um, you could try and uh, you could try and um, 
influence that by saying this is the most important story and you, you, sh you need to read this um, and we would hope that they would agree and read it and buy the paper um, you know, and, and you know that if you, if you put lots of football in the paper people are going to buy the paper and, and that's going to be popular. You know, some, some outlets, so you know, as we mentioned before, they, back in the day they had a page three girl that, that sold some papers. So you, you, you made calls around... Two out of the 120 <laughs> yeah. I sold every night. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that was that, only a weekly paper, the yeah. truth from memory. Fortunately, that went away very quickly. <laughs> yes, but, um, yep. But, the, um, but you, you were basically going on, you know, your experience, your intuition, the sort of... There was some, you know, reader, reader um, forums that, that, our, that the comp companies would run to get sort of, um, you know, readers' views on what they what they found most interesting in the paper, what they wanted to read more of, what they didn't want to read as much of. And you, and you tended to find, you know, people would, particularly age readers, would tell you that they that they read the front page, uh, and they read politics, and they read world news, and they didn't read any of this, you know, light, fluffy stuff about, you know, cooking and whatever. I go straight to business. But of course they did. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 um, and so you kind of, the, the, um, the way in which um, readers, um, the, what, what readers wanted from you was kind of, a bit murky, you know. It was a, it was a lot murky. Now we know exactly what people want to read because we've got we've got you know data. We've got um, we've got algorithms. We know we know how we know what the last twelve um, articles somebody read before they subscribed were. We know so we, we can see the sort of things that people want to read that to the, to the extent that they're willing to pay for it. Yeah. And that's where the monetization comes in. So you know there's there's a there's a um, a more scientific um, you know. Uh, uh, statistically based sort of um, uh, analysis involved in editorial decisions now. So, so we know, you know, people might think that we might be running too many stories about, uh, I don't know, um, Melbourne housing prices, but we know that that's the stories that are being read. That's, that's what people want to read about right now. Yeah. So, so we'll do more of those, and we'll do them in a way that um, that we know that they like stories about. That put that put people into into um, into the situation. So you know um, that humanise the story rather than it just being say about you know interest rates. You put you want to put somebody who's in, impacted by those interest rates who they can relate to. So you, you, and you know that works because you've got the data that shows you. So it's changed the way in which we operate um, significantly because we have we have now um, you know some empirical um, yeah. you know, content to, to work off. And data is king. I mean, we had our investment committee meeting this morning with our um, consultants up in Sydney, and our chief economist was actually just talking about 50% of the fixed home loans coming off over the next quarter, yeah. and how is that going to impact housing prices and stuff like that. But yeah. that's us looking at the macro data. But that micro story about you know Billy and Mary out in the burbs who have a million dollar mortgage on a house that's now only valued at 1.1 million, they don't want to sell it, and the bank won't call in on negative equity as long as the repayments are continually made, but their budget is getting very tight to the point where they're not buying cappuccinos on a daily basis anymore. Yeah. yeah that, but that's the story that you publish. Yeah. yeah. We look at it from the macro and what we have, we think that's going to look at the economy and affect the markets and yeah. affect your investments, yeah. uh, but you look at it is how is that really hurting, you know, uh, Billy and Mary out in the burbs. Yeah, I mean, it's about getting, it's about um, drawing people into it, engaging people. Yeah. So, you know, if um, if you've got a story that's got a bunch of, um, you know, uh, financial jargon in the top of it, you know, guys, guys like you are going to read it and it's going to be great, um, but you're, you're, the vast majority of our readers, will they'll, they'll glaze over. But if we can draw them into something that, um, that engages them 
on a human level um, that they can relate to and that speaks to, to their um, to their experience, then you know you're more likely to sort of uh, to, to interest them and to have them continue to um, read your stories and, and you know follow your um, follow your website. Good. Yeah. Yep. Mark, thank you so much for coming in today. I appreciate it. We've known each other for a while now. Um, and as I said, when, when we're looking for interesting discussions to have with clients and people we know for our, for our listeners, it's uh, after look, watching that, um, I think it's four or maybe five or six uh, in the series of the press, it was, I thought, I'm going to get Mark Fuller on too, to be honest, about running actual newspaper. Yeah, uh, so I really appreciate you coming in and sharing those stories. It was really, I really enjoyed them. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Mark. Thanks, Jamie. The Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.